This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. Today, uh, we're starting a new series that will take us into late winter, early spring called The Good Life. Uh, The series is called The Good Life. It is a study on the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is found in Matthew 5, Matthew 6, and Matthew 7. So it is three chapters. It is the first sort of teaching block from Jesus, the uh, first of five teaching blocks in the Gospel of Matthew. And so we're going to kind of work our way fairly slowly through this section of Scripture. And today, I'm just going to introduce it, uh, and then we will really jump in. I'm not going to comment even really on the theme title, which is a little bit odd, but uh, the title is The Good Life. And I'm going to explain that next week when we get to the Beatitudes. Uh, But today I'm just going to give an overview of the Sermon on the Mount and then we'll launch in sort of officially next week and I'll explain the theme of all three chapters being the good life. So let's look at Matthew 5. Uh, page 472. If you don't have a Bible, there's one uh, under you, under the, or rather in the seat in front of you. You can take that. If you don't own a Bible, that's our gift to you. Please take that with you today. So this is how the Sermon on the Mount starts, verses uh, 1 and 2 of chapter 5 of Matthew. This is God's Word. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, dot, dot, dot. We'll cover that next week. This is the opening to the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever. Not the one you're about to hear, but the one that Jesus preached. It is the greatest sermon ever. Uh, When we say a sermon, Um, I'm going to give a lot of kind of background stuff on this today. When we say a sermon, we're not talking about a transcript. This is not a transcript of what he communicated. It would have, that would only be about 10, 15 minutes tops. It's likely more of an outline of what he communicated. And some of these things likely he developed at a uh, much further than we read here. And uh, likely he, uh, some of these teachings he may have done in other times and other places as well. But it's sort of, uh, It's sort of an outline of the teaching that he gave on that day. I would encourage you to read through these three chapters um, over the next week, even before we come next week, so that you can get a feel for what the Lord is teaching. This is the most commented upon section of Scripture in the history of the church. There's no section of Scripture that has received more commentary and more different commentary, for sure, than than any section of the Bible. It is a section of scripture that has been highly prized and respected by those outside the uh, Christian faith as well. It's, it's uh, lauded as perhaps the greatest teaching on ethics that's ever been given. It was uh, respected, for instance, by people like Gandhi, who, uh, who saw great wisdom in this passage of scripture. And people who don't even know much about the Bible at all, they know phrases from the sermon on the Mount. So we get all kinds of uh, vernacular from the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Uh, That's something, a a phrase that's used in our culture. Someone being the salt of the earth, that is from the Sermon on the Mount. A city set on a hill, uh, a phrase from Jesus which was co-opted by uh, John Winthrop uh, and spoken about the colonies when America was first planted. And in our nation, from our roots, there's been an idolatry of nationalism, of American exceptionalism. And you can see it in our history, adopting the words of Jesus which have nothing to do with the United States of America and applying it to our country, that we would be the city set on a hill that all the world would 
long to be like? Well, Jesus is teaching that the church is the city set on a hill, his followers. And so that has run through our history. It was brought up later by Kennedy uh, in a speech, and then most, perhaps most famously, at least in my generation, by Ronald Reagan, who called our country the shining city on a hill, and it's been continued to be repeated. But that phrase did not originate with the pilgrim Winthrop or with any president, but it originated with Jesus, a city set on a hill. Or the phrase, turn the other cheek. Turn the other cheek. This is what Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount. The phrase, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. That is, people that don't know any prayer from the Bible know that prayer because they've heard it recited in a movie or or somewhere, uh, our Father in heaven. The favorite verse of all of Jesus for American culture, judge not lest you be judged. We've co-opted that one in our culture as well. That is the favorite verse uh, of, of all uh, any people who don't even believe in Jesus. They believe that verse from him. Or how about this one? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. So that's the, called the golden rule. All of those phrases are found in Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, and we'll look at all of them carefully. So the Sermon on the Mount is known and admired. It's at times co-opted. It's at times quoted out of context. Uh, But it is known by the world and certainly by the church. John Stott, in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, said the Sermon on the Mount is probably the best-known part of the teaching of Jesus, though arguably... It is the least understood, and certainly it is the least obeyed. (laughs) I've lived with that quote all week as I studied this passage. It is arguably the best known, it is arguably the least understood, and it is certainly the least obeyed. Well, why is it the least obeyed if that's true? I think because it's the least understood. You, you, our understanding and our obedience tie together. Why is it the least obeyed? I want to start with the question today, and this is a very serious question. Is it intended to be obeyed? Is the Sermon on the Mount given as a teaching that Jesus ever intended that people, that all people who follow him would actually obey? Is it possible to obey the Sermon on the Mount. Is it intended to obey? And it is impossible to obey. Listen to some of these verses from the Sermon on the Mount. Chapter five, verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Wow, the Pharisees were, uh, in that culture, the most righteous of the Jewish uh, people. And he's saying that your righteousness needs to exceed theirs. Or verse 529, speaking about lust. And he says that, you know, you've heard that adultery is wrong. Moses taught you that in the Ten Commandments. But I'm saying if you've ever even lusted, you've committed adultery in your heart. And then he says, verse 529, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Is that to be obeyed? Uh, Verse 533, uh, again, I have heard that it is said, uh, you've heard it said of those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all. Do not take an oath at all. Chain of the Bible, do you promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth to help you, God? No. Why? Jesus said, I can't. Okay, that's an oath. Can you take that oath? Does Jesus allow that oath? Verse 38, uh, chapter 5, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other cheek also. Really? No self-defense. That's what Jesus is teaching there. Are we to obey that verse? 
542, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow for you. What if they're asking for money for drugs or to support their alcoholism? Do I always give? What says give to the one who begs of you? It's an, it's an entire statement. Give to anyone who asks you for anything. Really? What about tough love? What about tough love? Or 7-1, which I quoted earlier, judge not that you be not judged. Seriously, don't, don't have any judgment about people? How, how is it possible to live without judgment? The standards that Jesus calls us to here are, well, they seem so unattainable, don't they? They seem impossible. The culture, our culture looks at this and says, well, I read about Jesus and I, I read his Sermon on the Mount and the church looks nothing like the Sermon on the Mount. So I'm gonna pick Jesus and not the church. We're often viewed as hypocritical because we don't look like the standards of the Sermon on the Mount. So all of that to say, how do you deal with this section of scripture? Throughout church history, I'm going to run us through a little bit of historical theology here. Throughout church history, there have been very different approaches to the Sermon on the Mount. So before we jump into it next week and in, in, uh, legitimately jump into it, I want to talk a little bit about how to approach it because the church has not agreed on how to approach the Sermon on the Mount. So for instance, the church fathers, those who were uh, early church leaders, they generally taught uh, that it was to be obeyed. A classic statement from Augustine who lived in the 300s and the 400s, he said that the Sermon on the Mount is the perfect pattern for the Christian life. So he said this is what Christianity is to look like and Christians are to obey it. In the Roman Catholic tradition, or at least the teaching of Thomas Aquinas, Thomas Aquinas was a, a priest and a philosopher who lived in the 13th century, he introduced a new notion. And the, the notion he introduced is that the Sermon on the Mount is not applicable for every believer. He said there are two types of believers. There are regular folk, regular believers, and um, and then there are sort of uh, a different kind of believers, and he divided the teaching of the Bible into two. He said there are precepts, which are the general teaching of the Scripture that all believers are held to. But there are something he called evangelical counsels that didn't apply to everyone. These were teachings of the Bible that could voluntarily be adopted by a certain class of people that were pursuing a radical holiness. Monks, for instance. So he taught that, that, that people who lived separately as monks, that they were to keep the Sermon on the Mount. That, that those called to monastic life were to live this out, but they lived a separate lifestyle. They were separated from people and from the culture to live a radical kind of holiness. So there was two levels of believer he taught some were to keep it, some weren't. Martin Luther comes along in the 16th century and uh, kind of in, inaugurates the Protestant Reformation. And Luther uh, was responding to much in the Catholic Church, including that, that two level of believers, the sort of clergy laity distinction. And uh, so he was reacting to that somewhat, but Luther realized that the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount was unattainable. By the way, when I speak about a whole denomination or movement in 90 seconds, this is going to inevitably be very cursory, a little bit of a caricature. So if you uh, grew up as an early church father or mother, or you grew up Roman Catholic, or you grew up Lutheran, you might nuance this more than I am going to do right now. This will be not very nuanced, but I think it'll be generally accurate uh, in its overall view to show us how to relate to this sermon. So Luther realized realizes that this is impossible to keep. And one of the things Luther did was he viewed all scripture in one of two ways. It's either law or it's gospel. Scriptures that are law tell us what we must do. Scriptures that are gospel tell us what God has done for us. So he approaches the Sermon on the Mount and he says, this is law. This is law and not gospel. So the purpose 
primary, the primary purpose of the Sermon on the Mount is to reveal our sin. The law comes to us and shows us that we cannot keep this, that we cannot never be angry with someone, that we cannot avoid all lust, uh, that we cannot always turn the other cheek. No, no one does that. So the, this is the law. It comes to convict us of our sins. So then we will repent and go to the Christ in the gospel and believe in Jesus. It leads to the gospel. Its primary purpose is law that is to lead us to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Uh, around the same time as Luther, there's a group called Anabaptist, the Anabaptist in the 16th century. Uh, their descendants would be like the Mennonites or the Amish. And actually, there's a resurgent, there's some very prominent sort of neo-Anabaptists uh, in the evangelical culture today that are certainly gaining ground among millennials in particular. Um, and so, but the, the historic uh, Anabaptists, they said, no, we need to apply the Sermon on the Mount to all of life. Th this is, we're, we're going to walk in integrity here, we're going to live holistically, and we're going to apply all of the Sermon on the Mount to all of life, not only our private lives, but also how we interact with the culture. So for instance, in that tradition, you are forbidden from taking an oath. In that tradition, you must turn the other cheek, so they forbid self-defense. They forbid military service. They view all military service as wrong because it defies, it leads you to at least potentially defy Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. So they're pacifists. They teach, for instance, that, uh, that you cannot serve in civil government. So they, they, are, they are sort of separating themselves from the secular culture, but applying the sermon in all of life, culturally and not just privately. Well, Luther comes back to them and he says, look, look, okay, I said there's not two levels of people. There's not clergy and regular believers, but there are two kingdoms, he says. He teaches that there are two kingdoms and we live differently in the two kingdoms. There is the private spiritual realm and there is the public civil realm. So in the, the, this applies, first of all, this is law to lead us to Christ, but it is an ideal of application in our private spiritual lives. In the public life, in public life, you may participate in the military. In the public life, you may take an oath. As a citizen of a secular kingdom, you may do so. As a Christian in the church, you wouldn't do that, but you would do So he says there's two kingdoms that we live in, and you have to know sort of how to live, that this is for individual morality. The Sermon on the Mount is not public policy is what he says against the Anabaptist. Well, John Calvin comes along in the Reformed tradition and he says, yes, certainly this is an example of the law that shows us our need for Jesus Christ. To be sure, it does that. Once we believe in Jesus Christ, we then get a new heart. The Holy Spirit comes into us and begins to change us and the Sermon on the Mount is the pattern for how we are then to walk out that new life empowered by the Holy Spirit. He says also the, it is law that leads us to Christ, but it is law that we are to apply, the so-called third use of the law. He says that this is the pattern for obedience to God. So these laws that Jesus teaches, we are under them, not to earn our salvation, but because we have already uh, been saved. And so he says that, that ultimately obedience to the Sermon on the Mount is part of our calling as disciples. We're just dependent on grace to obey it. So he quotes Augustine. This is a great prayer from Augustine, which is commonly quoted. He says, Augustine prays, Lord, command what you will and grant what you command. Command what you will and then give me the ability to do what you tell me to do. Fantastic prayer. Well, in the late 1800s and the early 1900s, uh, a movement starts, a theological movement called dispensationalism. Some in the room uh, come from dispensational. Well, some in the room come from every background I mentioned, probably. Uh, but definitely some come from dispensationalism. Dallas is kind of a dispensationalist sort of evangelical city. Uh, dispensationalists taught generally um, old line dispensationalism. My first Bible was a dispensationalist Bible. I had a Schofield reference Bible. It was my first Bible in elementary school. 
school. And uh, so uh, they taught, old school dispensationalists taught, Jesus comes and brings the kingdom to the Jews. The Jews don't receive the kingdom. They don't believe. And so we are now in this sort of parenthetical season, dispensation called the church age. And so Gentiles are coming in, uh, believing Jews are coming in as well. But ultimately, we are waiting for God to get back to his program with the Jews. And that will happen after the return of Christ. And it will take place in a literal 1,000 year millennium uh, where Satan will be bound and uh, it, during that period of time uh, the kingdom will come and the kingdom ethics will be practiced by Jews in a future millennium. So come for the Jews, they don't take it. In a parenthetical time, the church age, get back to the Jews in the millennial kingdom and in the meantime, this is not applicable. The founder of our own Dallas Theological Seminary, uh, who was a classic dispensational scholar, Lewis Sperry Schaefer, said of the Sermon on the Mount, as a rule of life or as, you know, a practice, the, the Sermon on the Mount is addressed to the Jew before the cross and the Jew in the coming kingdom, and it is therefore not now in effect. A moment's reflection will convince the mind that such a standard as this belongs to another social order than the present one. It is designed, the Sermon on the Mount is designed for a day when the king returns upon uh, the, his earthly throne and when Satan is in his abyss. It's designed for a day when the king reigns upon his earthly throne and the Satan is in his abyss. So it is a teaching for the millennium and not for today. Okay, that's just a brief history of how some people have taught it's confusing, is it not? What, what do you do? Is it for today? Is it not for today? Is it just law to lead me to the gospel or is it ex Jesus expect that I will obey this? How do we approach? It's not simple. How do we approach a passage of scripture like this? I think it's best to start by asking this question. What is the sermon about? And really zooming out and saying, what is the gospel of Matthew about? What is the gospel of Matthew about? And whenever I ask a question like that, I'm reminded of the often told story of the Sunday school teacher who is quizzing her students and saying, okay, boys and girls, I am thinking of something and I want to see if you know what I'm thinking about. It's gray and it has a bushy tail and it collects nuts and lives in trees. And the class is just frozen. And she says, come on, you know, it, it, it like lives in trees. It jumps from limb to limb, from tree to tree. And no one responds. Finally, some boy raises his hand and says, well, it kind of sounds like a squirrel, but I'm going to say Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus is always the answer when you're asked a question about the Bible. What is the book of Matthew about? Well, it is about Jesus, and particularly, it is about his authority. If you look at the beginning, chapter 1, verse 1, this is how Matthew starts out. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. It's written largely for a Jewish audience. And here instantly Matthew plays his hand from the very beginning and says, I'm going to tell you who Jesus is. He is the Christ, which means the Messiah. So he is the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah. He is the son of David. That's the name of the king of Israel, the son of David, the son of Abraham, that he is coming to fulfill the promise that was made to Abraham, that through his descendants, all the nations of the world will be blessed. So what we're finding out from the beginning is that he's rooted, connected to Abraham. He's connected to the son of David. He is the son of David, the king. He is the Messiah. So the, the, the Matthew uh, account of Jesus starts with Jesus is king of the Jews. How does it end? If you go to Matthew 28, at the end, if you go to Matthew 28, um, and look how this is the last chapter, this is what he says in verse 18. Verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So here he says, I have authority over everything and everyone in heaven and on earth. Therefore, you go and represent me to the nations. So the gospel ends with him being king of the universe. Starts king of the Jews. Ends, I have authority over all the universe, over all of heaven and earth. He is the king of the universe. Now, one way to, to know, there's multiple ways to know a, an author's intent. You can look at repeated words. You can look at repeated themes to see what he's really talking about. Or you can look at the bookends. That's another way. How does he begin? How does he end? Matthew begins with Jesus as king of the Jews, ends with king of the universe. And so it is a story revealing Jesus as the king. And is a story that reveals in particular his authority his authority he comes and is king over all he expresses his rule through a kingdom and he invites people to come into his kingdom to come and experience life under his reign the kingdom is his rule and his reign not a geographically bordered nation state but it is wherever the rule and the reign of Christ is known and experienced and honored his uh, his a uh, kingdom so it is a story of a king who is Jewish, who comes and brings the kingdom to earth, who rules over all heaven and earth, and who invites people into his kingdom. So how are we to hear the sermon? I'm going to make three points about how we're to hear this sermon. We're first of all to hear it, we're to hear Jesus the King, and we are to submit. We are to hear Jesus the King, before we get into what's relevant today and what's not, we are to hear Jesus the King and we are to submit. His sermon is not evangelistic. When I say submit to him, maybe you say, well, I've already submitted to him. His sermon is not evangelistic. It, it's, it's geared towards his disciples, but the crowds around are seriously affected by what he has to say. Look at verse 1, chapter 5, verse 1, the Sermon on the Mount. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to them, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them. So the Sermon on the Mount, I'm going to make an important point about this in a minute, is geared towards the disciples. It's initially focused on people who already believe, which is really an important point. Uh, but, but it's to the disciples. But the crowds evidently gather around because at the end of the sermon, look at verse uh, chapter, chapter 7, verse 28. This is the last two verses of the book, of the, I'm sorry, of the sermon. Uh, and when Jesus finished these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. So something has happened. He sits down to teach the disciples, and all of a sudden, the crowds are astonished. Why are they astonished? They're astonished because of his claim to authority. It's about the authority of Jesus. The whole book is about the authority of Jesus, ultimately, his kingly rule. And he is revealing an unparalleled authority that causes the crowds to be astonished. Look in chapter 7 again. This is kind of the last very lap of the sermon. He's at the very end of it, starting at verse 21. He says to me, not everyone who says to me, uh, I'm sorry, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, he's referring to judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So Jesus is not teaching like a rabbi or like a scribe. Jesus is saying, I will be issuing final judgment. This is astonishing. Nobody ever heard a sermon like this. You're gonna, some people are gonna come to me and say, hey, Lord, didn't we do all these religious things in your name, cast out demons, etc." And I'm gonna say, no, I didn't know you. You never trusted me. We, I, I, we weren't in relationship. You may have been doing activity, but you were never genuinely a believer or follower in me. Jesus is saying, I have the authority to, in essence, say uh, who receives eternal life and who doesn't. Verse 24, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on the house, but it did not fall. 
because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. So he's not saying, let me give you some lessons. I've got a Bible study here. He's saying your entire life will be judged and will go by how you respond to my teachings. He's saying, if you listen to what I say and obey it, you will be secure. If you don't, you will be devastated. No wonder, verse 28, and when Jesus finished these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. The scribes appealed to a legal authority. This rabbi says this, and this rabbi says this. Jesus says, you've heard it said to you by Moses in the Bible, but I'm saying to you, he's exalting himself above Moses. He's saying, I will be sitting on the throne, judging you for eternity. He's saying, your entire future is based on how you respond to what I'm teaching you here. These weren't interesting Bible lessons to consider. He is rather exerting through this teaching, he is revealing his authority as king. In his commentary on Matthew, Sean O'Donnell comments on these last verses um, of Matthew and about Jesus's claim to authority. That's where we start with the sermon. Not nice ethical teaching, not cure, but we start with the authority, not of the ethics, but of the ethicist, the one who is delivering this word. O'Donnell says, he says in essence, at the end of the sermon, he says in essence, listen, I'll be the judge of everyone. Your final destiny will be determined by our relationship or lack thereof. Whether you know me or not, whether I know you or not, and along with that, whether you listen to my words or not. I know this is not politically correct, O'Donnell writes. And I know, trust me, I know, that the biggest mental and moral issue in our culture today is exclusivity. I know that I can say to you just about anything about Jesus. He's my personal savior. He loves little children. He once walked on water. I can say all that. I just can't say, quote, he's the only way to God. I can't say what he said. If you don't know me, then you don't know my father in heaven. Yes, that sounds arrogant, but it is not any more or less arrogant or exclusive than the person who says, I think all religions are the same. I think each religion has some of the truth, or I think everyone is going to heaven. Why do you say that? Why do you say that? Because says who? Says you? And who are you to say such things? I'm serious, he writes. As I see it, I have three choices. I can believe you or someone like you, another mere human being. I can believe me and whatever I want to think and claim about such matters. Or I can believe Jesus and what he said. You see, it's a matter of authority. Who is your Lord? Self? Society, freedom of choice, the great idol of our age. Who is Lord? Jesus is my Lord because I believe he is the Lord. I believe he has authority over heaven and earth, which includes my itty-bitty mind and my unholy heart and me and my dirty hands. He is Lord. And I don't claim that for him. I simply acknowledge it and live by it. That is the purpose of the Gospel of Matthew, and that is a significant part of the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus is teaching like no one ever taught before. Jesus is revealing, in essence, his way, his law of what it means to walk with God and to know him. He is giving us authoritative teaching. He will be the judge for all eternity, and he prescribes that your life will go one way or the other based on how you interact with his authority. So as we go through this, I just want to make very clear that as we listen to the Sermon on the Mount, we're listening, my belief is, and if you're a Christian, your belief is, we're listening to God Almighty teach us. And that voice must be the loudest voice in our ears. We cannot be listening to the voice of the culture which says one thing one day and something else in another year, five years, or ten years. 
We cannot listen to the conservative political voice, the liberal political voice. We must listen to the king above all kings. We must not make our decisions and our perspectives just based on what I think seems reasonable to me or who in the marketplace of ideas is offering the best set of ideas for us to follow. If we want to know what the good life really is, then we must look to the author of all life, the Lord Jesus Christ. His teaching, it is an upside-down kingdom. If you read the Sermon on the Mount, you will not go, wow, that's all intuitive. I knew that. You will go, that is completely the opposite of everything I naturally believe. (laughs) Turn the other cheek. Forgive. Are you kidding me? Never be angry. If If I hate someone, I've murdered them? What are you talking about? It's completely the opposite of what we think. When you hear this sermon, hear Jesus the King and submit. And if you're investigating the Christian faith, it is so great that you are here. And you may not believe this sermon. You may not believe that Jesus is the King. That is one thing. But just don't just don't ascribe your own definition or my own definition of who Jesus is. Allow Jesus to define himself. And in this sermon, he defines himself, and in this gospel, he defines himself as the king of heaven and earth, the authority over all. You may not believe it, but if you disbelieve Jesus, disbelieve who he claims to be, not what you heard someone say he was or what you would like to think of him as, a nice teacher, a good person, a moral, uh, a moral teacher. View, realize that he claims to have authority over everyone, and he claims that he will sit on a throne and judge all of us. You can believe it or not, but just know that's what you're disbelieving or that's what you're believing. So when we hear the psalm, I mean, we're here with the sermon. We just got out of the psalm, didn't we? When we hear the sermon, hear Jesus, the king, and submit. Number two, hear Jesus, the deliverer, and be freed. This is some good news. Look at verse one again, chapter five. This is our text for today. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. Verse two, and he opened his mouth and taught them. The language he went up on the mountain, that same language is used in the Greek, uh, the Greek version of the Old Testament. It's used three times. In every instance, it's used of Moses. There is, I don't have time to develop this, but there is in the first four chapters, all this correlation between Moses and Jesus. And here is Jesus, who is the new Moses, who is bringing a new deliverance, going up on the mountain. Moses went up on Mount Sinai and delivered the law. Jesus is going up on this mountain, and he is teaching, and he's going to quote Moses. You've heard Moses say, don't commit adultery, but I say to you. You've heard Moses say, don't murder, but I say to you. So he's going to take the teaching of Moses and he is going to give, uh, he's going to give an authoritative application of it to the heart. Moses delivers the people of Israel from slavery. Well, Jesus comes to save the people as well, but from something totally different. Look at chapter one, chapter one, verse 21, speaking of Mary, she will bear a son And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So God was with Moses revealing his law to Israel. God is with us personally in Jesus, who has come not to save us from physical slavery, but has come to save us from our sins. And how does he do that? Matthew 20, 28 says, even as the son of man came not to serve, but to be, not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Jesus comes bringing a new deliverance He is a new Moses, and he brings a new deliverance, not by just issuing teaching and leading the people, but by giving his life. He he saves us from our sins by giving his life, and he leads a new exodus. We saw this back when we studied Colossians. He has led you out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of his dear son, that Jesus leads us out of a kingdom of slavery, out of a kingdom of darkness, and delivers us into his kingdom. 
that there is this Moses Jesus sort of thing going on in throughout Matthew, that Jesus fulfills what Moses was first sent to do. He is the true and the greater Moses. The old African-American uh, spiritual, which was written, I believe, during the time of slavery in the mid-1800s, makes this connection between Israel and Jesus in a way that many in the church have missed, that Jesus is the new, uh, is the new Jesus and brings the ultimate deliverance that we are looking for. Now, they're writing from, a, the author, I don't know who wrote it, but is uh, uh, writing from a context of physical suffering and slavery. The song goes, when Israel was in Egypt's land, let my people go. Oppressed so hard they could not stand, let my people go. Go down, Moses, way down in Egypt's land. Tell old Pharaoh to let my people go. No more shall they be in bondage toil, let my people go. Let them come out with Egypt's spoil, let my people go. Oh, let us all from bondage flee. Let my people go, and let us all in Christ be free. Let my people go. That's good biblical theology right there. That just as, Jesus just as Moses delivered from physical slavery, so Jesus comes and he delivers from the slavery of sin. So when we hear the Sermon on the Mount, we are hearing it in the context of a deliverer who is coming to bring freedom. We are by nature captive to sin, unable to obey the Sermon on the Mount. But Jesus dies for our sin, he is buried, he is raised to defeat the power of sin, to defeat the power of death, to defeat the power of Satan, and as he comes out of the grave, it is as if he is proclaiming, let my people go, that whoever has faith in Christ is delivered from the oppressive mastery of sin. We are freed. We're actually freed to obey. That's what Paul teaches in Romans. We're actually freed to obey Christ, not in our own, but by his grace with the new life that he has given us, the good life that he calls us to in the Sermon on the Mount. Once the Holy Spirit gives us new life and makes us participants in God's kingdom, we can begin to live out kingdom life. So hear these words as the words of the deliverer who frees you by his power from the power of sin to obey him. He, now notice, uh, this is where I said it was important that it starts with he speaks to his disciples. He, seeing the crowds, he sat down with his disciples and he began to teach them. Why is this important? Because back in chapter four, he starts his teaching ministry in verse 17 saying, from that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Verse 23, and he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel, that is the good news of the kingdom, healing every disease and affliction above them. So Jesus's ministry starts with good news, the good news of the kingdom. If it's you must obey all of these verses to earn your way to salvation, that is bad news. But if it is the king, the deliverer has come to set you free, that is the good news of the kingdom. That he comes with one to break the chains, to set the captive free, and then to lay out this glorious vision of what life is to be like in his kingdom. The Sermon on the Mount describes life for those who have already come into the kingdom. He is speaking to his disciples disciples who have heard the good news of the kingdom, who have believed the good news of the kingdom. And he starts the entire sermon with blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The poor in spirit are those who are not leaning on self-righteousness, but say, I have nothing to offer God but my sin. I am weak. I am sinful. I am ignorant. I need grace. That is the poor in spirit. So Jesus says, this is a kingdom that is open to everyone who comes in their weakness and their pain and their heaviness and their rebellion and their sin and says, I need a deliverer. Everyone who comes like that with faith in Christ, repenting of sin, is brought into a new kingdom freely by grace, freely by grace. So when you hear these words, hear the deliverer. 
even Moses, even when we get uh, the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments don't start with you'll have no, you shall have no other God before me. That's the first commandment. The Ten Commandments start with the prologue where God reminds them that he delivered them. I am the God who brought you out of Egypt. It is deliverance and then God's word given to us to obey. And the same is true here. The good news of the kingdom is proclaimed. The disciples believe and now he's going to show them what life in the kingdom looks like. Lastly, hear Jesus first of all as the king and submit to his authority that he is the one who speaks the truth. Hear Jesus as the deliverer and be freed. Lastly, hear Jesus as the prophet and hope. Now naturally the Sermon on the Mount, when we hear it, we think of Jesus as the teacher. I mean he says that, right? He went up, he opened his mouth, and he taught. He says he's the teacher. He doesn't say he's a prophet here. I get that. I'm introducing a word. But but the reason I'm using that word is because his his teaching is calling for repentance and it is describing what life is like under his rule. It is describing what life can be like. A life for people who enter the kingdom by faith. For those who enter the kingdom by faith, this is what life can look like, what life is to look like. And so there's this prophetic sort of forward-looking life that is being described. There's also an eternal life that's being described here as well in this passage. So he launches his ministry announcing the good news of the kingdom. Those who believe receive new hearts and enter his kingdom which has yet to come in all its fullness. So there's a prophetic sense that the kingdom is yet to come. So he says, 417, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That means it's here. In the Lord's Prayer, he says, pray your kingdom come, your will be done. There's a sense in which the kingdom is future. This is how I think we get it, this is it for us or not? Is it for now or is it for later? Yes, the kingdom has come in Jesus. Those who know him have the Holy Spirit and now have the power to obey him and live a kingdom life. But the kingdom will never be here in its fullness until Christ returns. The kingdom in its fullness will come after the return of Christ in a new heavens and a new earth. So there is a sense in which the kingdom has already come to us by grace and we're called to obey this. And there's a sense in which we'll never fulfill this until we see him face to face and sin is no more. So the kingdom of God is already here And it is not yet here. It is already here to be experienced and it is still coming to be longed for and looked for and anticipated. That's, I think, how we apply this. The kingdom is here and yet it is to come both at the same time. That's that's how we apply this text. And he is describing what life in the kingdom is like. Those who already those who already know him and are hoping to see his work both established in the world and in the age to come. His kingdom rules are glorious, by the way. These are not the oppressive rules of a tyrant. He's freed us from the tyrant. The tyrant is the enemy. He has freed us. Think about the rules, the lifestyle, the ethics, the the way of life, the good life of the kingdom. Think about what he teaches here. He teaches that this is life as God intends. He speaks against anger and he speaks for reconciliation. He speaks against lust and he speaks for marital fidelity. He speaks against retaliation and calls us not only to love our neighbor, but to love our enemy. He calls us to care for those who are in need. And he calls us, by the way, to give alms to the poor privately without fanfare. He calls us to care for those in need secretly. He calls us to pray for, to our Father. This was unheard of. Jesus is teaching something totally new when he says, our Father who art in heaven. The, the Israel viewed God as sort of their corporate Father, but for an individual to pray, you are my Father, This was revolutionary. So so the the prayer of the kingdom is our Father who is in heaven. And then later he says, don't be anxious for what you will eat or drink or what you will wear. Your Father knows what you need before you ask him. The the kingdom is, is being united to the Father who provides what we need. Listen to what he calls us to. He calls us to be meek, to be poor in spirit, to hunger for righteousness, to be merciful. He calls us to be peacemakers. In other words, he calls the people of the kingdom to look like the king, 
to live like the king. And as we do, he says, you will be a city set on a hill. You will be the light in the darkness. The, the king, kingdom entrance is by grace always. Kingdom entrance is by faith in the king always. Kingdom entrance is always by the one who paid for our sins, not by us atoning for our sins or by us being good enough to be accepted. It's by his death that we are in resurrection, we're welcomed into the kingdom. And as we do, he is building a people who are a city set on a hill. I'm grateful for our country, but there is a city set on a hill that's far greater. It's all peoples, all tribes, all tongues, all nations living in Christ, united across all barriers in Jesus to shine as a light to the nations. That's the city set on the hill. It's the church. He says, you are called to be a light in the darkness so that others may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven, the same Father that has welcomed you, the same King that has extended his kingdom to you, the same King that is healing sicknesses, that is delivering people from the devil, that is forgiving sins, that is saying, build your life on my teaching and you will withstand whatever storms that come. Build your life on whatever other foundation and you will be devastated for you have no sure ground. As we study the Sermon on the Mount, I pray that we experience hope. Hope not only for eternity, we should, but if I'm tipping my hand, I'm not teaching this is all for the millennium. I'm teaching this is for today and for the future. But in teaching it for today, I pray that there is great hope not only for a coming kingdom, we should hope for that, but we should also hope for God's present kingdom, which has come in Christ. Hope that his power may be in us to live a new life and that his kingdom, that together we can pray as a church and as the body of Christ in the city and throughout the world, Lord, let your kingdom come and reign amidst us. Lord, may your kingdom works of power be done through your church. May your kingdom works of repentance be expressed from your church. May your kingdom works of meekness and peacemaking and hungering and thirsting for righteousness be reflected in your church. God, may your kingdom redefine our value system. May we buy into the upside down kingdom for the Christ has bought us for himself. May we say the good life is not described by the American value system. The good life is not described by Greek philosophy, which says these are the good values uh, and traits um, of morality either. The good life is defined by freely entering the kingdom by grace and being transformed to live as a people who are a part of his kingdom under his rule now and forever. May his kingdom come. So do I think we can obey the Sermon on the Mount? No, not in our own strength, not apart from grace and never perfectly this side of his return. But yes, I believe by grace, this is what God wants the church to look like. This is what God wants us to look like. Obviously, there's some passages we're gonna have to wrestle with to figure out how does that really play out in our lives together. I'm not saying it's simplistic, but I am saying that I believe as kingdom citizens, God wants to change us more and more and more to reflect him. And that all starts, as we look next week, by being poor in spirit. It starts by seeing our our need. It starts by seeing our need for the King. Jesus is the King, so hear Him and submit. Jesus is the Deliverer, so hear Him and taste freedom. And Jesus is the prophet that speaks what life is to be like now and forevermore, so be filled with hope at His Word for the life that we can experience by grace together. Hope for this day and hope for eternity. Hope to experience the good life as God intended. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.